Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Genier on Talk Show. Today is Friday, March 11th, 2011. I've been presenting a series on, on um, the revelation of Yahshua Christ that Eli and I had started on the, on the Yahweh's Covenant People program. I've presented so far up to through chapter 13 of the Revelation, and, and according to my historical interpretation of the prophecy, which actually follows in the footsteps of Howard Rand and Bertrand Compare and Wesley Swift and, and many other traditional Christian identity teachers, that, that brings us to the time of, of Napoleon at the end of Revelation chapter 13, to the end of basically the 2,520 years of punishment of the children of Israel, I understand that the last 200 years have probably been much worse for our race than those 2,520. However, there are many other prophecies in play aside from those 2,520 years. There's the time of Jacob's trouble, which would be a time of trouble that never was since, the, since there was a nation, and that's a separate matter of prophecy, and that is where that is where I believe we were at. We are at now, and, and Revelation chapter seventeen seventeen, where it says that Yahweh would put it in our minds to hand our kingdom over to the beast, and that is because of our sin. I will be elucidating that. I pray. In, in future chapters of the Revelation, as we cover chapters 14 through, through 18. However, now I thought, it, I, I thought it fitting to just take a step back and, and have Clifton Emmeheiser here with me, and, and we would reflect on some of the things that I've already presented, especially concerning chapters um, 12 and 13 of the Revelation and, and the Beasts of Daniel, because they dispel futurism, and we have a lot of people, futurism that is so ingrained, the, the, this futuristic view of prophecy that the Jesuits concocted in the 16th century is so ingrained into our Christian culture and these mainstream churches today that many people, even in Christian Israel identity, have this idea of futurism and, and a future um, personal beast antichrist that's going to torment us for seven years and, and, and there's going to be a rapture maybe and all this, all this futuristic cartoon religion that, the, that these philoso babblers have concocted. And, and, and we have it and, and we see it all the time in, in Christian identity people who, who, who we, we think should know better, to be honest with you. It, it's very clear that the Jesuits concocted futurism in order to let the Pope off the hook because the Reformers understood that they may not have had it as, as well as, as Tom Reagan Rand and, and hopefully as well as we have it today, but the Reformers understood the first men that opened their Bibles and actually read their Bibles understood that the Catholic Church, the papacy, the papacy as an institution was the beast of the Revelation. 
there's all kinds of artwork. I can't really name anything specific right now, but if you look at my papers on org, misconceptions concerning Paul and the church, if you look at some of these revelation illustrations I've used on the Christ Strike site to illustrate some of my chapters in the Revelation. The, this, some of the artwork I've employed is employed for, not because the pictures look pretty, but because these are drawings from the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries that demonstrate that the people who took part in the Reformation understood that the Pope was the Antichrist, and not just any particular pope, but the papacy is an institution. Now, now I would say, and, and I'm sure Clifton would agree with me, that the concept of Antichrist is much wider than just the papacy. Each of the popes, many of the popes were, were good men early on, and, and many of the popes in, in the later years of, of the Romish religion, they were individually Antichrists. Because John, in his epistles, uses the word antichrist, not in the singular, but in the plural. And he tells us, even now, many antichrists have been born into the world. And those who deny that Yahshua, or Jesus, is the Christ, they are the antichrists. And, and it's very clear that while, while there are other manifestations of, of um, antichrist behavior that those who deny Christ, they are the primary antichrist in the world. And in John's time, that could only describe the Canaanite, Edomite, Jew. And, and those people are still with us today, of course. And today, they still play the role, and by their fruits you know them, they are still antichrist. They are still the antichrist as, as a collective unit. And, and each one of them is an antichrist. Well, well, today I have Clifton here, and, and we're going to review some of the things that we've discussed. And, and hello, Clifton. How are you doing this evening? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good and uh, ready to go, I guess. <laughs> ready to go? Okay. Well, well um, where do you want to start off? Well, I'll I tell you, I don't think we can get uh, Daniel uh, chapter... We, we, if, we, if we can't get uh, Daniel chapter 2 right... Uh, we we will not be able to correctly identify the players on the chessboard in the book of Revelation. And uh, there's some key scriptures in, in in the second chapter of Daniel that that I would call absolutes, uh, and they would carry on over to the book of the Revelation. And if you think you're getting into something in Revelation that is uh, that is contrary to it, uh, what Daniel says uh, uh, establishes the fact uh, of what it really is. And um, <clears throat> I, I got uh, a printout here of the four, uh, of four passages. Um, would it be all right if I read them now? Or? Oh, please do. <clears throat> okay, Daniel 2.45. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, uh, and the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, 
and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. And uh, so uh, your futurists try to identify this stone as Christ, and Christ is uh, identified uh, different places as a rock, but this, uh, I believe that you agree with me, Bill, that this stone is not, uh, uh, is not Christ. Oh, absolutely not. Christ is the chief cornerstone of a building, which building is the body of Christ. And, and Christ being the chief cornerstone, he is not the entire building. The re every Christian is a stone in that building. And that's the name of Peter. That's the meaning of Peter's name. And Peter plays on his name. The meaning of Peter's name is a stone. It's not a rock. It's the word Petros is set in opposition by Christ to the word Petra. He says, you are a stone, a Petros. But upon this Petra, meaning bedrock, will I build my assembly. And Peter plays on the meaning of his own name that was given to him by Christ in his epistles and calls each of us living stones. Every Christian, every Christian Israelite, if I may qualify that, is a living stone. And, of course, people was only writing to the children of Israel when he said, you are a holy nation or, or a holy race and, and a kingdom of priests. And, and that's a direct reference to, to Exodus chapter 19. And, and um, Peter intended only the children of Israel in his epistle and said that each of us are living stones. So the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, well, the mountain has to be the mountain of Yahweh. And, and the stone cut out of the mountain without hands are the tribes from that larger mountain of Yahweh, which are the Aryan peoples. Especially the, the, um, especially the German tribes, right? Well, right. The Germanic tribes who came out of the deportations of the Assyrians, they are the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. And one of those tribes that's kind of unusual is, is called the Huns, and yet they fulfilled Daniel's prophecy, so they, they must have been Israelites also. Well, well, absolutely, the Huns, and, and I believe I demonstrated that when I discussed Revelation chapters 6 through 8, and, and the Huns are definitely, they, they were described as a tall, white, fair people, excellent horsemen, great warriors, and, and um, they, they were respected by Procopius, the, the Byzantine historian, and that's the way he described them. They were respected by the, um, by the Germ German writers of the Nibelungenlied, and, and other of the Germanic um, poetry for, that, that dates back as far as the 5th century, to the very time of the Huns themselves. That the, the, um, the propaganda we hear about these short, runty, little yellow Huns, that's Catholic Church, that, that's Roman, Romish Church propaganda. And, and some of it, to an extent, is Gothic propaganda that... that um, through, through the, his, the Gothic historian Jordanes, but he was really only repeating the, the Roman writer Cassiodorus, and, and that, that they despised the Huns, so, so they portrayed them in a very mean light. Well, this is one of the places where uh, Compare and um, 
Howard Rand uh, kind of went wrong on on this part of it, uh, on on this stone, right? Well, well, right. And and my biggest problem with Rand is that he thought that the Jews were Judah, or, or at least to a great degree, and and that drove him off a cliff with interpreting the Revelation. Uh, I sincerely believe so. And Comperay, you know, I may have thought the same way at Comperay's time. This is no doubt. But Comparay really wanted to take this whole um, invasion of Gog and Magog and, and Ezekiel 38 and 39 and, and Revelation chapter 19, which that is interwoven with, and, and he wanted to apply it to his own time in the Cold War in the 1960s, the United Nations. He thought it was all going to culminate right then and there, and, and it didn't. I mean, we might be, well, we may have preferred that it did, but it, it just didn't play out that way. But but he was very, um, Russia, USSR, you know, the Soviets and the United Nations were, were the Antichrist to him, and, and he was just not right about it. He was trying to read too much into the history of his own time and into Revelation, and, and I think that that was where his major errors lie. So we have to take these German tribes on into the book of Revelation and apply them when we see them there, right? Well, well absolutely. And that's why when we see um, Revelation chapter chapter 6 verse uh, and, and chapter 8, we see the Germanic tribes are actually the, the um, in, in the fourth horseman of the apocalypse when, when Rome is, it, is at its most decadent and, and has totally... Um, corrupted itself, and, and Daniel explains why right here, because the iron and the clay do not mix, and, and they can't possibly create a, a nation that, that will stick together, as we see in modern history going on around us right now. And, and the Germanic tribes, therefore, finally were able to destroy, to invade and destroy Rome, where when Rome, before Roman, before Rome absorbed all those Arab and, and Edomite slaves and, and Egyptian slaves and Moorish slaves. And before Rome took all those slaves and gave them citizenship in the empire and made them equals with, with the Adamic Israelite Roman people and, and Greeks, well, well, before this happened, Rome was inconquerable as, as, a, as a homogenous nation or, or in a homogenous world, Rome was inconquerable and, and when, when Rome became race mixed, Rome became corrupt and fell apart. You know, I found that information on what happened in Rome and how they made this, the slave citizens, you know. And, and you know, that was in old um, textbooks like they used years ago in the early 1900s in these um, one- and two-room schoolhouses out in the country and so on. And, and you know, they should be teaching that kind of stuff today. And, and well, well, it's very politically incorrect because we did what? We did the same thing with the 14th Amendment in the 1870s in this nation, didn't we? Right. And and uh, this textbook that explained how that uh, uh, Rome was getting into financial trouble, you know, and and somebody got the bright idea and they 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 saw these uh, uh, slaves, you know. Uh, and, and they said, well, you know, if we'd make these other people, if, they, if we'd make them citizens, uh, then they would have to pay tax, and, and that, that would be an answer to our financial problem. So that's what they did. But when they made them equal citizens, then they had to allow them to intermarry. 
and that's how well, that got started. Right, and and the Roman Empire for for many um, centuries had had strict laws about who could intermarry with who. Yeah, that's the part I left out. The the the, the Romans actually had laws that that uh, that only white people could marry white people. Well, well, basically that's boiled. It boiled down to it that. It probably it was, was even a, more narrow than even that. more strict than that. You know, you probably had to marry in your own tribe, whatever it was. Yes, they only allowed certain tribes to marry certain tribes. Greeks and Greeks and, and Romans and Romans and and that there there were um, laws everywhere in in all the provinces of Rome about which tribes could intermarry with the others, even if they weren't Romans. So the stone is not Christ in in the as the futurists would have him, and and uh, it is some it's not something we're going to. See in the future. Well, well, no. Daniel's fourth kingdom is um, definitely the Roman Empire. It describes the Roman Empire to a T. This is proven in history. It, it's proven in Daniel itself. When we walk back, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you are the head of gold. If Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, then the empires which succeeded him must be the silver, the brass, and the iron and Rome being the force in the list of, of these empires is definitely the iron of the of the beast with the two legs. So there should be no doubt that the people that destroyed the Roman Empire, the people that invaded it and, and conquered it, they have to be the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Now the Romish church, because they um, followed in, in world hegemony, basically they followed the Roman Empire, they claimed to be the kingdom that was cut out of, that the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. But that's a false claim because they, it was not they who destroyed the empire. And, and this is pointing at the people who would destroy the empire. And the, the Romish church cannot take the credit for that by any means. So um, the futurists are absolutely wrong on this stone being Christ. Well, well, right. And the Romish church actually did, it is in prophecy as succeeding the Roman Empire as the second beast in Revelation chapter 13. It's very clear. Well, you know, we got a lot of people in, in identity that haven't, uh, uh, some of them that probably knew, you know, and they, they, they don't realize some of these things. And, and uh, you know, when I, uh, when I learned, you know, I used to follow this futurism. I thought it was right. But when I found out it was wrong and I had been lied to, I threw the whole damn thing out the window. I, anything I thought was futurism, I, I cut out. I, I didn't want it anymore. Well, well, right. There's still some prophecy in the book of Revelation that are in the future, but it's not much. Most of it's been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled because the revelation, it is a picture of history drawn for the Apostle John by Jesus Christ, by Yahshua Christ, 2,000 years ago, or almost, or, or darn close, not 1,950 years ago, perhaps. And, and um, over those 1,950 years, which we've had since then, most of this has come true. Most of the, and, and we can look at it once we understand it, and we can know that God is true, that the God of the Bible 
really is God. And, and I don't see how anyone understanding that could possibly want to falter in their faith. And, and that is the, the biggest, um, to, to me, that is the, the brightest ray of sunshine I've ever seen in my life. It is to, to understand the historical interpretation of the Revelation and understand the history itself and, and see that they line up so well. That, that this God of, of this Bible has to be God, has to be true. You know, that's the same way with me. It, uh, it gives me a lot of confidence in when I, when I read the Bible that I'm actually reading something that's true. Whoa, whoa. Absolutely. I thought it was, and... but, you know, it, it, uh, when, when prophecy starts to line up, and, and uh, about 90% of it you can uh, line up today pretty well, and that gives you a lot of confidence and a lot of faith. Well, I'll read, I'll read uh, Daniel uh, 2.35, which has another absolute... Uh... Well, well, let me just say one, one thing. Okay, is, yeah, is go ahead. When, well, when you see the first 17 chapters of the book of Revelation have been fulfilled in history, you, you know damn well that the last four chapters or five chapters will also be fulfilled. And, right. and that's there's no doubt in in my mind, and and there's a lot of scoffers today. Oh, there's no God. Oh, he's not coming. Well, well, the book warned of us warned us of that very thing. The thing of and, it is, and, we really don't understand it until these things have happened, and then when we look back at it, then we can understand. Uh, so we're not sure how all of these things are uh, uh, the the things that remain to be fulfilled, we're not sure just how they're going to be, but we can be sure that they will be. But, well, right. So so at this point, I'll quote Bob Ashton. He, he's um, he's in the TeamSpeak forum with me a lot, and, and he's here quite often. He's not here tonight. But but he wrote me on Skype one day, and, and it's not anything that I didn't already understand, but he put it very succinctly, and I couldn't possibly put it, to, put it any better. He said that the prophecy does not exist so that we could read it and know what's coming in the future. The prophecy exists so that we could read it and look at the past and know and know that God is true. That's why we have the prophecy. Okay, Daniel 2.35, I think you Okay, Daniel 2.35. Uh, then was the iron and clay and brass and silver and gold broken to pieces together, and became like uh, the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away that no no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And the important thing here is this is telling you that uh, the whole image, and that would include all of Rome, and the, the the leg the legs the toes which represent the um uh ten roman provinces and all that uh it's it's a thing of the it's an absolute fact it's a thing of the past and all these futurists are looking for the roman empire to be revived is is strictly strictly ridiculous 
Well, well, if you could put all that chaff back together and and put it back in the field and make it grow again, then then Rome could come back, right? Okay. Uh, I think you wrote that in one of your teaching letters a long time ago, right? It, yeah, it, and that's, yeah, right. That, that's absolutely true. These 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 futurists are looking for a revived Roman Empire or a revived all powerful Pope, and and it's not going to happen. Yeah, in fact, I'll, I'll read what I wrote on it. the 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 Roman Empire, uh, the Roman Empire became the iron mixed with the clay. Daniel's prophecy says here that all the uh, empires of Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome uh, would be no more. Question: How does one restore chaff? Maybe some uh, of the people who proclaim that the Roman Empire is going to be restored should uh, get a pair of tweezers and a magnifying glass and go out and follow the farmer farmer's combine during wheat harvest and demonstrate how such a fantastic thing could be done by collecting each and every particle of chaff and then uh, fasten it back uh, to the very kernel of wheat that it came from. And, and some vain people might imagine that all things are possible with God, but I'll tell you what's not possible with God, for him to break his word. And if he says that they're scattered like chaff, that means that they're not coming, and they won't be put back together again, and that means that they're not going to be put back together again. That, well, that when Rome the futurists is, claim that the, the Roman Empire is going to be revived, they're making Daniel a liar. Right, and Daniel can't be a liar. It, it's that simple. It's not possible for Daniel to be a liar. So, so the futurists are all liars, every one of them. So it's, it, it, Rome is in the past. It's not coming back. Uh, I know the they, have, they, have, they, they have the all club of Rome today, you know. Uh, it's one of those political organizations that they have. But that doesn't have anything to do with the Roman Empire. Well, well, no, exactly not. The Club of Rome is a bunch of um, Jewish bankers, right? I'm not just sure who I've read in the past, you know. It's been so many years since I've read some of this stuff. Uh, I should go back and refresh my mind on a lot of that stuff. Uh, I'm getting a lot of cobwebs in my head anymore. Yeah. <laughs> It's um yeah the club of Rome is a bunch of Jewish bankers and international merchants and and industrialists and and it has nothing to do with well, with anything that's sacred or holy that's for sure. So the it, one it, thing we can be sure of the Roman Empire is not going to be revived and. No, absolutely not. And the stone cut out of the mountain without hands is the Germanic people who once the Roman Empire was destroyed certainly did fill the entire earth or, or fill the entire land. What was population? The, the Anglo-Saxon and and and, and, it, and, it, and it was predicted it would be the kingdom and would last forever. So yes, we're, we're, we're living in a kingdom right now, and it's going to last forever. Yes, although, our people, although our Christ people are, is not here, we're we're in the kingdom. Our people are never ever going to be supplanted on this planet, and and it might look really bad right now, and and it might even look worse in twenty years if it goes that far. But we have to have hope and know that we are promised a permanent kingdom here on this earth, and we've been in it 
for, for over 1,500 years. We're just too thick-headed to know it. And if we would only practice Christianity, well, we would do nothing but succeed, and all these other races and, and evil peoples and the wicked and the Jews well, would just fall to the wayside. So all those four kingdoms are, are gone now, and, and uh, they're not coming back. Because absolute fact, and, and when we get into uh, Revelation, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't try to uh, carry the Roman. Of course, the Roman Empire. Uh, the the first few chapters do tell how the Roman Empire fell, but uh, uh, but as of now, there is. There, there's the, the the Roman Empire, if it's carried, chaff carried away by the wind, where do you go find that chaff to put it back together? Now, Daniel reinforces this idea in Daniel chapter 7, verses 17 and 18, where he says, These great beasts, which are four, of four kings which shall arise out of the earth. And and he's talking about the leopard and the bear and the lion, and, and they are the, the same four beasts that, that make up the four parts of the image of the beast empires in Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel 7.18, he says, But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever. Now, now that's, so Daniel 7 is a, a, a full reiteration of Daniel 2, even though Daniel 7 is even wider in scope. And in Daniel 7.27, he says, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall obey and serve Christ. Where Daniel says him, but he means Christ, or, or Yahweh himself. Yeah, Christ is your way in the flesh, you know. Absolutely. Uh, there's another problem, you know, that uh, uh, our people's having an identity, uh, uh, getting away from the Trinity. Well, well, absolutely. There's no Trinity because um, yeah, Yahweh told Moses that he could be whatever he could be. That's the way I read that. I, I am what I am in the King James, right? Is I am whatever I, I would wish to be. And, and um, he's not only the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but he's the rock in the desert. He's the angel in the burning bush. He, he's whatever he wants to be. He, he's the... Um, the, the flame that descends on the ark, the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke. It, it's, you can't have a trinity, but because Yahweh can be anything that he wants. It, it's any, any, um, it, he is God and any manifestation he chooses to have at any particular time, he will be. Well, it's basically one God in three manifestations. Well, well, right. Each of those is one manifestation of the same God. Yes. But there are, I'm, I'm trying to say there are many other ways in which God has chosen to manifest himself, such as the pillar of fire. Should I go ahead with Daniel, um, the third one here, Daniel 2, uh, 241 and 42? Yes. <clears throat> okay. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength 
of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall, meaning the Roman kingdom, in other words, the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Um, well, well, right. Not all of those people were bad. Not all of them were race mixed. There were a lot of good people left in in, in Roman and Greece and, and in the lands of the former Roman Empire after the Germans had destroyed it. And, of course, uh, the image had ten t You know, a man has ten toes, and this image had a head and two shoulders and arms and and abdomen and uh, hips and uh, uh, legs and toes. So it's, it's only if, it, it's, if it's a... Uh, image of a man has got to have ten toes. So well, well, right, and I think I, I, I explained last week, and, and it's, I don't, I don't know, I want to beat my chest, but it's the best explanation I've heard. A lot of people have argued about the identity of these ten toes, and there have been, for, for as many biblical commentators, there are different interpretations, but one thing that, that Rome had ten of consistently all through, throughout the the centuries of the empire were ten senatorial provinces that belonged to the people of Rome, and and that's how I see the ten toes. Oh. Now, now there were there, there were twenty five at one time imperial provinces. Now they were the provinces on the frontiers that were conquered and subjugated by the emperors, and they the emperors controlled those provinces, but they weren't the core of the, the Roman people, or, or the, actually the Greco-Roman people. They were actually um, all the other peoples that the Romans had conquered and, and subdued and, and set kings over. Well, well the ten senatorial provinces, now, now the number of the imperial provinces changed often, but the senatorial provinces were always ten throughout the time of the empire. And, and they were the core of the Roman people. Yeah, there's one other thing about these two legs of the Roman Empire. One leg was a thousand years longer than the other. Well, well right. The um, the Byzantine Empire did last for a very long time, but, yeah. but I see that as a double. The Eastern meaning. Roman Empire. What was the date that uh, that, that the Eastern? Uh, no, the Western Empire. The Western Empire finally. Uh, Dissolved. Uh, wasn't that around uh, 490 something? Well, well, it's usually counted as 476. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah I, I know the... it's, it's been a while since I've got on that. And of course, the other leg survived in the Eastern Empire on up till Constantinople, which would have been around 1400. 1452 or 1453, one or the other. And, 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 um, uh, so, some of your books will point that out, you know, the one leg being uh, longer than the other by a thousand years. And, well, well, right, but I, I also see that that um, that this in, in Daniel chapter seven, there's that eleventh horn, the, the horn that grows out from the ten, and I see that as a double meaning, and I explained it, I believe, last week, what, where it, in the beginning of Daniel 7, it seems to indicate a kingdom that is the Byzantine Empire as we know it, but in, in later in Daniel, it seems to indicate a king, 
and it says the ten horns are ten kings, and then an eleventh, and Justinian was actually the eleventh emperor of the Byzantine. The, the, um, he, he was the eleventh emperor of the Eastern Empire, the eleventh legitimate emperor. And, and I think that it points both to the Byzantine Empire and to Justinian, that eleventh that horn. But see, we have to carry this over into Revelation. So in Revelation, it'll show that that the eastern uh, part of the Roman Empire fell first, and then no, the western fell first, and then uh, a thousand years later, approximately, uh, the eastern fell. You know, uh, and you remember, uh, you remember those um, those pictures of those brass cannons that I sent you while you was in prison. Yes. And, yeah, well, uh, yes, I've collected other pictures of, of them since. I, I have. Um, I, I had actually first seen them in Rand's book, Marvels of Prophecy, and, and then sent that book home, and, and you had sent me the. Um, I didn't have access to it any longer, and you had sent me the cover to it, a, a, a scan of the cover. But I've actually found those pictures on the internet also, and, and I have one on the on the um, the Christrike site. I would imagine they have some of those in the British Museum or some museum someplace. They're, they're an old brass uh, casting made into a cannon, and it's described so well in Revelation. Uh, you, you see, Constantinople was almost impregnable until the cannon came along. And then those Turks with those with those cannons, they kept banging away at those walls, and they finally made some opens, uh, openings in them. And was able to break through. Well, well, right. I think Constantinople would withstood like twenty-eight sieges, I think. But but the um, the the Normans took it without much of a problem. I'll say that that they. <laughs> but yeah, yes, the um, the cannons were instrumental in the final destruction of the Byzantine Empire, and it was actually from information I found. It was actually a Hungarian cannon maker who made those cannons for the Turks. Was now, that I'm, right? I'm, yes, that, that's. I'm trying to corroborate that, but I, I have found information on a couple of places on the internet that, that, and I'm trying to find a more scholarly source for it, right? Like a, a an old book would be nice, but they they claim it's a Hungarian cannon maker or an Austrian cannon maker. I forget that made those cannons for the Turks. And it's described so well, you know, in, in Revelation there. It talks about uh, the, it had the face of a lion, you know, and, and of course the cannonballs came out the mouth, you know. The, the bore of the cannon was is through the body of the uh, of the lion, and it was a lion sitting down, uh, and, and uh, then he had a tail kind of like a serpent, you know, and... and um, what they uh, uh, it was a lion sitting down. They had the two arms sitting up front, and, and uh, of course they take the front off of it, and 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 then the cannonballs could fly out the the um, bore of the cannon. And but uh, what they did, uh, they would pour some kind of liquid that that would uh, ignite, you know. Down that tail, it evidently had a hollow tube through it. They poured that in there, and then they they lit that, and that would go down, and and that would ignite the gunpowder down 
blow and, and, and set off the cannon. And there may be a lot of people that uh, don't realize that those brass cannons existed. Um, well, well, right. The cannons, the, the cannons that that well, at least some of the cannons. There was one very large cannon used against Constantinople that didn't look like that. But at, at least some of the cannons that were used against Constantinople were shaped like lions and looked exactly like John's depiction of them. In Revelation chapter 9, where it says that the power is in their mouths and in their tails, and their tails look like serpents, the tail, the fuse was lit at the tail, and the tail was very long and wound down the back of the, of the body of the cannon, and, and the muzzle was the mouth of the lion, and, and that was where the cannonball would come from. And, and once you see the picture of the cannon and understand the, the, um, the, the imagery which John is presenting in Revelation chapter 9, you know that he's talking about the fall of Constantinople and, and that this 200 million man army it is um, talking about all of the Turkish invaders all through time uh, over the many centuries that it took the Turks to totally subsume the ancient Byzantine emperor, uh, empire. So I think with this passage, you know, uh, that the um, the main things it's an absolute fact that uh, that uh, Rome had ten provinces and and uh, the eastern part of uh, the Roman Empire lasted a thousand years longer than the uh, western part of the empire lasted. Well, let's discuss Daniel chapter 9, because the futurists just love to point to Daniel chapter 9 and, and use that as, as um, that, they, that they break that last week off of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. And, and, and that's just incredible that they are brazen enough to do that, because to, to the, I mean, to me, it's perfectly clear that the last week of this Daniel 70-week prophecy is definitely talking about Christ himself. But they are making Christ out to be the Antichrist, aren't they? Yeah, right. I'd like to read Daniel um, chapter 9 in part. And, and Daniel is praying in chapter 9. Remember, Daniel's a very young man. When he's brought to, to Babylon, he's one of 10,000 young men who were taken as hostages by the king of the Babylonians. He was only about 16 years old. And, and he had been in Babylon since he was 16, and he sees what's happening with, with Jerusalem and the Babylonians and, and what's become of Jerusalem, and he's praying to God, to Yahweh, to ask him what is going to become of Jerusalem. And, and he, he, he says, O oh Lord, hear, O oh Lord, forgive, O oh Lord, hearken and do not, defer not for thy own sake, O oh my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. He was interested in what was happening to the people of Judah and the city of, of David. So he's given this answer, and, and I'll read from Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make 
reconciliation for iniquity. That's definitely a messianic prophecy. And to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and anoint the most holy. Of course, the most holy, the, the anointed is Christ, and, and the most holy are, are his people, and, and it doesn't mean anything about Jews, right? Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Now, now that's a very um, time, difficult time to discern from history, but I can pretty much establish and Clifton, you reprinted my notes on this matter, that, that this going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild the city, not the walls that Nehemiah rebuilt, but the city itself happened, actually culminated finally about 457 or 456 B.C. with the time of Ezra. So from the going forth of that commandment unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. That's 69 weeks that adds up to, right? The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So from that time to the Messiah, we're told to expect 69 weeks. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah, meaning that second period of time, shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, Paul understood this in Romans 16.20 to be the Romans, that the Romans are the people of the prince, that the prince is the Messiah, and, and that the Romans would destroy Jerusalem. Paul, predict, Paul understood Daniel and predicted that in Romans 16.20, and the actual destruction of Jerusalem came a few years later. Now, the um, verse 27, and this is where the futurists love to go, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, meaning the city. And the he of that verse has to be the Messiah of verse 26. But they actually break this verse off, Daniel 9.27, and claim that it doesn't happen for thousands of years into the future, don't they? Yeah, right. And, and that's just incredible. If we really pay attention to what's being said here, the futurists take the Christ and make him out to be the Antichrist, don't they? Yeah, they, uh, it's blasphemous to do that. It, and And how did Christ... Cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. He, he did that by becoming the sacrifice, didn't he? he and and all, all of the Christian writers tell us that Christ is the last sacrifice. He's our sacrifice for our sins. Are you? Did you uh, quote nine twenty seven? Is that what you quoted? Yes, that's where I am. Yeah, right I, I had I, I wrote on that in the uh, in my uh, WTL. Um, um, uh, Watchman Teachings Letter uh, Number Fifty Seven, and then I commented uh, after I had uh, quoted that uh, everything in this verse revolves around who the He is. Uh, those who view prophecy from a historical view f uh, favor Messiah as the antecedent of this pronoun, and would favor the following. Uh, affiliated passages, and then I, I, I you know, uh, it would be you, you can find passages that would uh, go with this pretty well. Isaiah 42:6, um, 
uh, Isaiah 53, 11, Isaiah 55, 3, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, uh, Jeremiah 32, uh, 40, uh, verses 40 and 40 to 42, Ezekiel uh, 16, verses 60 through 63, Matthew 26, uh, verse 28, Romans 5, 15, and 19, uh, Romans um, 15, uh, 8, verses 8 and 9, Galatians 3, 13 through 17, Hebrews uh, uh, 6, uh, 13 through 18, Hebrews uh, 8, verses 8 through 13, Hebrews 9, uh, verses 15 through 20, plus 28, Hebrews 10, uh, 16 through 18, and uh, Hebrews 13, uh, verses 20 and 21. The futurists take the grammatical reference to be the prince that shall come, a view favored because they claim that the grammatical uh, reference is nearer uh, and because they also claim what is said further in this verse does not fit the Messiah but the Antichrist. And well, well, that's because they don't understand. All right, let me read this, this verse slowly, right? And that, I'm going to read 9.26 nice and carefully. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. That Now, who is the prince that shall come but Messiah the prince of verse 25? Now, now what they try to do is say that the, the people of the prince that shall come, shall destroy the city, is a different prince other than Messiah the Prince. And and they do that because they simply don't understand that the Roman people, being the tribe of, Ju- of the tribe of Zarah-Judah, are the people of the Prince. Not only are they the people of the Prince, Messiah the Prince, but they're also his kinsmen avengers, aren't they? Yep. That they fulfilled the the biblical Hebrew, the the role in in Hebrew law, they fulfilled the role of the kinsman avenger by by avenging their kin, who who was also of the tribe of Judah, and and destroying the Edomite Jews, who were not his kinsmen. He came into his own own land, and, and the people of the country didn't know him. That the um, that they separate they they don't the commentators that the mainstream Christian I don't even want to call them Christian the mainstream churchianity commentators don't understand that the Romans are the people of God and they are the people of the Prince who would come and destroy the come and destroy the Jerusalem Paul understood it in 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 the, his epistle to Romans. And and we in Christian identity should understand it better than anyone. And and just for that reason, we have to dismiss that this futurist hocus pocus that that this prince is a different prince than than Messiah the prince, and and that the Antichrist is going to cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. We should know 
And as the New Testament writers tell us over and over again, Christ is our sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God, and upon his death, there is no other sacrifice necessary. And, and anyone who tries to make another sacrifice is basically denying the Christ. Yeah. Oh, well, they, they become an Antichrist by doing it, don't they? Absolutely. Well, well in, the, in the 70th week of this Daniel's prophecy, which started when Christ was baptized in the Jordan River, and, and his ministry was three and a half years, in the midst of that week, he was cut off. And he caused the sacrifice and oblation to cease by being cut off, by being crucified for us. That's the fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week. The last half of Daniel's 70th week was the beginning of the apostolic period. It's over. It was over 2,000 years ago. Well, you know, they, uh, the futurists, uh, I got it written up here, they claim that by no means should this, cov uh, this covenant be understood to be made by Messiah. For one thing, they further contend it is in the wrong time frame, the, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. The truth is there is no time frame for so-called uh, Antichrist. Uh, for, for another, they uh, continue, Christ did not make any uh, seven-year uh, covenants, which he then proceeded to break after the three and a half years. They then again assert that this is the seven-year covenant made by Antichrist with the Jewish nation, which the super-duper-pooper Antichrist then comes and breaks in the middle of what they dubbed the tribulation. Well, well God's not making any covenant with the Jews. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? This is pure nonsense for... Why uh, why would uh, this fictitious so-called Antichrist want to make a covenant uh, with the Antichrist Jews uh, who are not in any way true Israelites? Surely, if there was a future so-called Antichrist on the horizon, and there isn't, uh, why wouldn't he make that covenant with the uh, true Anglo-Saxons and related Israelites? Uh the third, the third view on this, uh, they, they, they try to make Antiochus epitomies, uh, the he in Daniel 9.27, and I'm sure that uh, this would fit real well with the uh, Catholic preterist false theory. Well, well, absolutely, but Antiochus epitomies is way too early to fulfill 490 years from the time of Daniel. He actually only followed Daniel's the rebuilding of the city. He followed Daniel by 400 years, but he followed the rebuilding of the city by 300 or thereabouts. Now, the um, it's clear to me that that Christ, when he came and he was sacrificed, that caused the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. The people of the prince were the Roman people who would come and destroy the Jer Jerusalem. Now. They were the people of Messiah, the prince. Paul said very clearly in Revelation chapter 16, verse 20, that 
Yahweh would crush Satan under their feet shortly. And he was talking to the Romans. Yes, he was. Well, it had to be the Romans. He, he was without doubt talking to the Romans. He was talking to the Romans, and the proof of that is in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about them having gone off into paganism. And, and that can't describe any Jews. That they, they weren't the ones that were, were caught up in paganism. That they were the Edomites who were pretending to be Israel, worshiping the God of Israel. But they weren't um, they they weren't employing the the idols that Paul was only the Romans were doing that. Romans chapter one can only describe Romans; it can't describe anybody else. So we have to get these things right to understand. We got to get Daniel right so we can understand Revelation. And a lot of people haven't really studied Daniel uh, as closely as they ought to have. I run, a well, of, I run a series of lessons on Daniel. I can't tell you exactly. Uh, it would be around that uh, WTL 57, uh, right in that area there. I run several of them. And uh, I, I would um, tell people to, to go and, and check and see what I wrote there um, along that line. Well, well, I mean, we have it here. Oh, oh, yeah, this is what you've just read with all of those cross-references. And, yeah. and yes, people, I'll probably take your notes and, and put them with my podcast when this is posted on Christogenia, right? Okay. I, I didn't make any notes for this program, but I'll take your notes and put them with the podcast. Okay. Just so, just so that people can see some of the cross, some of the verses that you cross-referencing. And, and it's only excerpts from your teaching letters, but, but at least it's all in one place, right? Well, then I wrote in uh, WTL 57, uh, then along came another Spanish Jesuit Catholic priest by the name of Ribera uh, going to the other extreme. And, well, uh, he had to understand from where I was writing this that anyway, went to the other extreme propounding the theory uh, that uh, the whole book of Revelation related to events that would take place at Yahshua's second advent and therefore was still in the future and that a super-duper-pooper world dictator Antichrist would appear at that future time. Right after uh, the massacre of St. Bartholomew, instigated by the Jesuits in 1572, Ribera published uh, his theory of futurism. Today, there are thousands of ministers going about spouting Ribera's theory. Uh, for 250 years from uh, 1580 to 1830, the false doctrine of an individual personal future Antichrist was a recognized teaching of the Roman, of the Church of Rome. On the other hand, the Protestant reformers held that the reign of Antichrist extended uh, all through the Dark Ages from the 4th century to the Reformation. <clears throat> After the expulsion of the Jesuits from numerous nations, a Chilean Spanish Jesuit priest by the name of Lacunza came from Chile to the uh, north of Italy where he wrote a book, The Coming of Messiah in Glory and Majesty. He, uh, 
He was steeped in the current Jesuit futurist teaching to which he added some of his own ideas. From that time to this, it uh, has uh, become a giant snowball gathering speed and momentum crashing down upon us today. Ribera and Lacunza in their attack on the reformers in turn were attacking the books of both Revelation and Daniel. Right, and that was it. The reformers properly identified the papacy as being the beast of Revelation and, and the serpent and the Antichrist. And, and some of the popes at, at the time of the reformers were serpents, weren't they? The, the Borgias and, and the De Medicis, they were definitely serpents. And, and I don't think that the reformers understood the, the, the entire two-seed line message, of course, but, but they did have the enemy pointed out to a great degree, and the Jesuits basically invented futurism and preterism, and they did so to cover for the sins of the papacy and to justify the Romish Catholic Church. Yeah, you want to proceed with what you wrote in um, Watchman's Teaching Letter number 131? 131 here, yeah. In um, Watchman's Teaching Letter 131, I wrote, uh, this casting up, uh, known as catching up, you know, the, the, uh, they're talking about the rapture. This catching up of the saints is uh, declared to mark the beginning of what they misidentify as the Great Tribulation period, at which time there is to appear a super-duper-pooper Antichrist. Yes, there are Antichrists, and they also misidentify who they are. They claim that this Antichrist makes his appearance. He will. Um, they claim that, that when this Antichrist makes his appearance, he will make a covenant with the Canaanite Jews, and will rule for seven years. Uh, they uh, they also claim that after three and a half years of uh, making the covenant with the Canaanite Jews, uh, he will break it. And the Canaanite Jews will realize they had crucified the real Messiah, and 144,000 of them will be converted to Christ and evangelize the world. Imagine that. <laughs> Then at the end of the seven years of tribulation, Christ will uh, return a third time with his church to set up his kingdom. Uh, uh, some try to imply that uh, because Christ didn't, uh, according to the way they look at it anyway, didn't actually come to the earth at the time of the rapture, uh, the third coming is actually the second coming. Evidently, this coming... The rapture is only a close encounter, you know, like they show on television in some people's minds. Well, well, right. That's what it is. It's a cartoon religion. Futurism is a cartoon religion. It's a cartoon religion invented by by, by Jewish Catholics that call themselves Jesuits that that um what wanted to make the world safe for the second beast and, and to make it safe for for world Judaism. The Jews could get away with any crime in the world if people believe that they're the people of God and they're going to be converted at any minute and, and be good people at any minute. They could get away with any crime they want, and that's exactly what they've been doing for 120 years now. 
I think that has to be the most fantastic idea of 144,000 Canaanites being uh, converted and going out and evangelizing. Well, well, right. It's a it's a religion that it, it's it's the best religion that the Jews could buy. Jewish that Satan's money could buy. That's what it is. And and mainstream Protestants that that this was written. Futurism was invented in in order to set the work of the reformers at naught. And and they weren't really able to do that at the time that futurism was invented. But they have done it since all of the the um, institutions that were founded by the reformers have adopted futurism that they've all adopted this as their as their world religion that they're basically Jews between the ears every one of them and it's absolutely anti-christian that they they blaspheme Christ in the name of Christ it's absolutely incredible it it makes a lot of the words of Christ come to life where where he says that many will say to him lord lord have we not um prophesied in your name and have we not cast out devils in your name and he says get away from me i never knew you and and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the pentecostals yeah. is doing a lot of casting out I, I i i don't have much good to say about the pentecostals i know it started with a, a nigger you know uh, it had started before that, but when the nigger got into it, he really got the thing rolling. Well, well, right, absolutely, and it's the perfect it, it's the perfect religion for for Africans because it allows them to act like the beasts that they are. Well, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in church, and, and I can look back on uh, on some of the escapades that, uh, and the emotions that was worked up in the church, and all they was trying to do is like. Act like those uh, Aussie street niggers. Well, well, that's exactly what it is. It, it's taken um, the, the bestiality of Africa and, and brought it into Christianity. That's the way I look at it. That, that's the way I look at Pentecost. I, I know it started with Scotsmen, but but it's definitely been turned into a beast religion. I have no doubt about that. But you know that came in just pretty much right in parallel uh, with with the um, when the Jews uh, bought off Schofield to, to pass the uh, futurism in the United States. Well, well, yes, the the, the Jews. I, I don't think they even that they only bought off Schofield. I think they were that they were the major influence on on Bullinger also, and and I know that the. Um, that the Bollinger's notes come mostly from the Masoret or, or the notes of the the rabbinical notes of the Middle Ages. Well, they influenced a college up in uh, Chicago. There, I can't think of the name of it right now. That, that was the Moody Bible Institute. Moody, Moody Bible, yeah. And the Dallas Theological Seminary. Yeah. And 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 that was through Schofield and through Bollinger. Uh, I think Bollinger may have been their backup boy if Schofield failed. I, I I really think so. I don't I don't know, but. The, those men, their Bibles are still on the shelves today, and, and they're still sold today, and they're still popular, and that's only for one reason, because they did Satan's bidding when they wrote their notes and when they wrote those those Bibles. That's why they're still on shelves today. If those Bibles didn't work for the Jews, 
and, and give to the, the Jews the best Christianity that money could buy, they would not be on the shelves of all these Jewish-controlled establishments, that's for sure. Yeah, when Jews like Schiff and Uttermeyer, and I can't think of some of the, the other names is in there, but but when they get into that, you know you know that they there's they got an angle in there, they got they got an agenda. You have a note on the clay. We were talking about the Roman Empire in Daniel chapter two and the iron oh, and the yeah, clay. Oh yeah, and, right. And in your notes, you quote me, so I'll read it. Right. Okay, <laughs> go ahead, and then you can explain it. it. My translation of um of two Timothy two nineteen through twenty. Through 2.21, Yahweh knows those who are his, and all who are calling by name the name of Yahweh must withdraw from unrighteousness. In a great house, there were not only vessels of gold and silver, but also vessels of wood and clay, some things for honor, yet others for dishonor. Therefore, if a man would purge himself of the waiter, Paul is saying we have to purge ourselves of the vessels of dishonor. We don't tell the Mexicans they could go back to Mexico. We purge ourselves of them. If a man, being a vessel of gold or silver, if they would purge themselves of the later, the vessels of wood and clay, he would be a vessel for honor, having sanctified himself. So we see right there, if we are iron and they are clay, we see right there that we cleanse ourselves by purging ourselves of the vessels of wooden clay, or the non-Israelite peoples, serviceable to the master, having prepared himself for all good works. That's a quote from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. I'm glad Clifton found it in relation to Daniel chapter 2. And Clifton quotes some comments. I don't know where I made these comments, but Clifton... I, I'll you take remember it. those... Um... <laughs> Uh, uh, essays in biblical history you did, I found it in that. Well, well yeah, but that, each one of those essays in biblical history is only a, a, one of the... It covers several topics. Right, right, right. Well, well, Clifton quotes me here. He says, notice that Paul told Timothy to purge himself from the vessels which are for dishonor, to sanctify himself by separating himself from them, not to try converting them. Two questions. Could Daniel, and this is Clifton now, could Daniel's toes of iron mixed with clay be vessels of dishonor? Well, well they would have to be, right? And, and the iron are the vessels of honor, and the clay are the vessels of dishonor. Also, is that the, re, the same reason the descendants of Esau are, and, and this is a quote that Clifton's making from Romans chapter 9, verses 20 through 24, vessels fit for destruction. And that's exactly what they are. Just like um, if you want to know, if you want to suppose that these vessels of dishonor are beasts, if you want to suppose that these, that, these squat, that these brown squat monsters invading our nation are beasts, as Jeremiah 31 says that they are, then if you want to see what the fate of the beasts is, and we turn to the New Testament, the book of Jude and, and the, epistle, the epistle of Jude and the epistle of 2 Peter both talk about evil beasts good for nothing but to be taken and destroyed. So that's the fate of beasts in the New Testament. Well, the sooner the better. I, I would have to agree. 
but I don't think they'll be getting bus tickets back to Mexico. Well, well, okay. I mean, you have some notes here on Ted Wheeland. I know he's one of your favorite people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I wrote about the um, – uh, I was going through my computer picking out uh, – uh, using uh, certain keywords to try to find out where I'd written on this. So I had written uh, in a brochure uh, from my brochure, Ted, Ted R. Wyland Gifts of Bibles uh, to Nigeria brings us uh, – Twice as much evil. Uh, I, I didn't read that just right there. From my brochure, Ted R. Wyland's Gifts of Bibles to Nigeria brings us twice as much Bible. He evidently sent some Bibles over to Nigeria. But uh, uh, then I wrote, uh, Daniel makes liars of all universalists. To show, the, uh, to show you this, we will go to Daniel 2.43 through 45 which reads, And whereas thou uh, sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, and they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Uh, and, and the days of these kings shall, let me get to, this is page three, got to get page four here. Uh, Page four. Here it is. Uh, the God of heaven set up the kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it break in pieces. Uh, the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the, the um, great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain and the interpretation uh, sure. And then I commented on this. Two important premises are determined here. One, the kingdom was established in the days that the iron and clay being mingle, uh, mingled with the clay, not at some future time like the futurists uh, uh, declare. And two, the kingdom would not be left to non-Israelites. Anyone who proclaims that we are to teach the non-Israelites uh, the law is a liar, big time. One closet universalist uh, with uh, two names recently stated in an email um, the valid missionary activity is teaching the law of God and bring uh, the other peoples into subjection. This dual named this dual named and dual minded individual was actually calling Daniel the prophet a liar. Well, well, right, because there is no valid missionary activity. As Paul told Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter, I mean, this is only one example of, of hundreds, that, that, that um, we're to separate ourselves, we being vessels of gold and silver, as, as we imagine ourselves to be the children of God and the children of Israel, are to separate ourselves from the other people. That was valid 
in Timothy's day, and it's valid today. It's even more valid today. It's even required much more today. And the important uh, thing in that uh, passage is the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Well, well, absolutely. The, the kingdom shall never be left to other people, and, and other people, the vessels of clay and, and wood won't inhabit the kingdom of God. There's no doubt. So you don't, you, go, you don't take this up into Revelation and try to get some non-Israelite people in. Right, it's never going to happen. Well, well, the important thing here tonight was was that the um, what well, we discussed the, the historical aspect of these things, and we see that there's no room for futurism. And and next week I'll be back with my commentary on Revelation chapter, probably chapters fourteen through sixteen, because they're short chapters, and and I imagine that will pop, even that may only take about an hour, but um. I'll try to make it as as, um, instructive as I I hope to have been able to make the first 13 chapters of the Revelation. And any closing comments, Clifton? Any any, um, overview, summary, any any, um, comments on the Well, I think there's anybody that uh, is uh, carrying around a little baggage of futurism, yet they should really... uh, Try to analyze and see if they are, and get rid of it because it just doesn't fit the Bible. Well, well, absolutely. We've been in this seven times of tribulation. It's not seven years of tribulation. It's seven times of tribulation. Twenty-five hundred and twenty years of tribulation. I do not see what could be worse than the Thirty Years' War in Germany. I can't see what could be worse than than, than the suffering and the pain our people had in the First World War. Uh, I'm going to read a quote. Uh, I'm going to read a quote. Somebody sent me this tonight, and and, um, I think it's a very interesting page, and and I'll be looking at it more. It's all about the physical and cultural destruction of Germany. And and this page, it's um, E-X-U-L-A-N-T-E-N dot com slash hell dot H-T-M-L. And, and here's a quote from Andreas Griffius from 1637 from a book called Tears of the Fatherland. Now, this is the time of the Thirty Years' War. Full now, yeah, more than full, bold our dev- behold our devastation, the frantic drum beat and the brazen horde, the thundering siege and the blood-slick sword, devour all diligence and sweat, and careful preparation. The church is overthrown. Our mighty men are slain. The town hall lies in dust. Our towers burn. Virgins are raped. And everywhere we turn, our fire, plague, and death to pierce us heart and brain. It, it's a poem, and I probably destroyed it. But it, it's just a, a one slice, a, a one small picture of the the devastation that the German people suffered for having the wherewithal to break themselves away from the Catholic, from, from the Romish Pope and, and the Catholic Church. And Jews were in control of the Romish Church when this happened. It was the Jews in power in Rome who had sought to destroy or subdue the German people. The Reformation was a lot more important 
and on in the historical aspect of, of in the history of our race than people could ever imagine. It's it's um what the Jews failed to do in in the Thirty Years' War, they were a lot more successful with in 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 the um the First and Second World Wars, and we helped them. The, you know, the greatest... I, I'm old enough to um, uh, remember the last days of the Depression, and then then um, uh, uh, getting the factories going to gear up for war, and and then. And getting in the war and, and all that. Yeah, I was 14 years old when uh, when Pearl Har uh, when uh, Japs bombed Pearl Harbor. Well, well, right. I, I think. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to. Well, what, I, I'm not saying that people born in the 1960s wouldn't do any better, but but they call it the greatest generation that the people that um. Went away to World War II, lived through the Depression, fought for, for World War II and won and, and um, into the 50s. They call that the greatest generation. I think they're the greatest generation of whores that, that ever existed because they did all the work in Satan and, and destroying our own brethren and our own race. See, they allow and, us to have prosperity if we shoot each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what the Depression was all about. Well, well Adolf Hitler had that prosperity in Germany because... Germany was not under the yoke of the Jew, but like Yahweh said, Revelation chapter 17, verse 17, I'll put it in their hearts and minds to turn their kingdom over to the beast. That's exactly what happened. And and it's our own sin that did it to us. And now we're running out of money to give give them anything more. Well, well they have us mortgaged for the next couple of hundred years now. That they've gotten was all these Obama bailouts and and the, the the all of this spending under the last two presidential administrations were mortgaged for the next two hundred years probably. And every bit of our labor is already is already owed. And and it's all it's all fake debt. It's all, it's all phony debt. It's incredible. It, it's it's in, it, it's absolutely incredible. And this, see, they, they want to take it out on the. Um taxpayer they want to raise the taxes to to pay all the debt you know what they what they need to do is um take all those uh, 14 trillion dollars and write a check for 14 uh, uh trillion units of thin air which like like they that's what they made the, made the money out of and they they could pay the uh, debt off overnight well, well, we're in Revelation chapter 17 right now in history, and in the next chapter, Babylon falls. We have a guarantee. We will prevail. We're we have seen through, huh? 13 chapters of history highly detailed in the book of Revelation, and it's already in our past. And, and as I hope to present next week, chapters 14, 15, and 16 are also already in our past, although they're also ongoing at the same time, right? Because chapter 14 it is a general um, view of what's to come for the rest of history from the time of the the, um, the Napoleon and, and the time of Anglo-Saxon world has hegemony. 
But but basically, all these things are in our past. They have all been fulfilled. They've once you see it, they've all been fulfilled to a T. And and because we've seen the first seventeen chapters of Revelation fulfilled, we are guaranteed that the next five will also be fulfilled. Yahweh will not rest, and and we will prevail in the end. Okay, thank you, Clifton, for joining me here tonight, and, and I'll be back next week with Revelation chapter 14. Okay. Praise Yahweh. Good night. Good night.